Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And Peyton's unclean until this evening. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> he, uh, he happened to share that right before we uh, got our guest on the horn. And, you know, I was telling you earlier, Peyton, my, my greatest shame, I think, would be um, if I was having to stay inside the, uh, the Israelite camp all the time. I'd be like, look, I haven't been outside a camp in a while. I need to be unclean. You know, it's funny because people used to ask me, like, you know, I had this crazy evangelist when I was in the UK, and other pastors would ask me, because they'd see him out preaching on the streets and stuff, and he was quite a rough character, and they'd be like, dude, how do you pastor that guy? And it was so funny, because I'm imagining now that I'm going to get, like, calls and conversations. (laughs) How do you minister to that Pete Mitchell guy, right? How do you pastor him? Because Pete tells me the other day, we're talking on the phone, and he busted me up. He goes, I'm just telling you, I'd be ashamed for being in the camp. I'm just saying, like, I'd be ashamed. I'd want to be outside of the camp all the time. I'd feel like a loser if I were always in the camp. I, you know, if people don't know what we're talking about, you got to go back and listen to our episode on Leviticus, where uh, Peyton was doing his daily chapter review of Every chapter in Leviticus, and then, of course, we got to Leviticus 15, and uh, it was game on for Pete after that. So, So, hey, we want to introduce our guest today. Um, We are very honored to have uh, an author who has come at the apologetics question from a very unique perspective. We've all heard of Josh McDowell, who years ago sought out uh, to disprove Christianity, well, we, we've got uh, a detective, um, former detective, still active, brought out a semi-retirement, working on a case. His name is Jay Werner Wallace, and some of you have seen his book called Cold Case uh, Christianity. And if you want to check it out, it is on Amazon.com right now. It is 
actually on sale on Kindle for $2.99. So it is an absolute bargain. You need to go check it out. He is with David C. Cook. So he is a brother from the same mother. And uh, Jay, it is good. I'm going to call you Jay because your real name's Jim, but we're going to call you Jay, Dr. Jay. And you're going to say, no, Dr. Cold Case, right? Well, like, I'm trying to figure out what in the world I'm doing on a show that starts with the citation from Leviticus. Okay. <laughs> First of all, you didn't warn me, but you didn't give me any uh, notice this was coming. So I don't know. Yeah, well, you, Here you, I am. Well, wait till you're done. Wait till yeah. you feel what you feel at the end. I know. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, this is one of those experiences I'm going to say, what was I thinking when I said yes? That's You're going to get a call from David C. Cook saying, never go on that show. So, but yeah, so we're basically saying, hey, both you guys don't think you've got any future plans with this publishing house. Okay. <laughs> you guys are glad, glad you exposed that, what your real problem is because we're not going to hire you back. So we just ruined our future. Absolutely. So, hey, welcome to uh, the show. Good to Thanks have you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. I mean, I feel like we're going to, if we could probably talk for hours just about a bunch of nonsense because we, I think we are uh, <laughs> similarly, similarly wired, but uh, we'll try to be disciplined and do this uh, in a way that actually is of some benefit to somebody other than us. How's Absolutely. That? We spent almost 25 minutes. The reason that Jay's saying that is because we spent uh, 25 minutes before the show talking absolute nonsense and going everywhere under the sun. And he's definitely uh, a, a brother, a long lost brother. But here's the deal. Um, you come at this book called Case Christianity like a homicide detective. In fact, your subtitle of the book is a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. Now, that subtitle, cha-ching! Oh, and by the way, anytime you mention your title, the rule is, Jay, you have to say uh, you have to say cha-ching. And if you, don't, you, you think you're going to drag me down into your, into your <laughs> low-level comedy, okay? Uh, this is just not happening, all right? You can say cha-ching if you want, okay? But you know how I feel about cha-ching? This is why, you know, my whole goal with this book was to do something as a tent maker, you know? <laughs> yeah. so, so in other words, you know as well as I do, having written a book now, okay? I've written a Christian book for a, a publishing house, which is really, really well-known, but let's just face it, I think you've discovered, if, if you're like me, that you weren't doing this for money because there's no Absolutely. money in that. Absolutely. It's really about ministry, right? You're, you're doing it because you know that there's something you felt needed to be said that maybe wasn't being said in the certain, or you felt like, hey, you know, uh, there's probably people out there who are like me who maybe have a similar path or a similar set of predispositions, and maybe this will help them. I mean, a lot of that's really what motivates us as writers because, let's face it, um, you can get. There's so many good books out there. Do we really need another one? Do we really need another anything? Really about anything in Christendom? I mean, they've been writing about this worldview for two thousand years. But I think that that even though that's true, uh, your book, Church Zero, uh, my book, these these are books that come from a, a very particular. Um, aren't you going to say Cha-Ching, By the way, when I, I said know Church I was you didn't say your title. Come on, well, man! I... I gave you the whole t- setup and whatever. Well, no, no, but, no. If you mention my book, nothing yeah. has to be. If I say your title, nothing. But if I say my own title, Cha-Ching! Okay, well then, good. So now book, I know how to so avoid that. that fly. I know how to avoid that. Then. That's fine. But I mean, what I'm trying to say is, you, you know that that the, the reason why we wrote this is because we felt like there was some experience unique to our own. Uh, life unique to our own uh, experiences in past pastors, whatever that was really un, really unsaid still and there wasn't a book out there that captured it quite the way that we experienced it or maybe captured the wisdom quite the way we we had it to offer and so no. we come back and we say, "Hey, let me just try to uh, throw this back out and so there's nothing new, really probably nothing new under the sun in any of these uh, approaches, but there's something very new in the in the sense that that you know we're we're speaking from our own experience. And I was a guy who was uh, very much a skeptic and very much 
an evidentialist, and uh, I really had to come at Christianity this way to knock down the walls that I had built up before I would even give the gospel a fair hearing. So, so for a lot of it, I mean, I'm hoping there are people out there. I get a lot of people who will write to me and say, "Yeah, this just this touched me because I'm wired just like you." And and I think you see Paul talking about that when he writes to the Corinthian church. And he, you know, basically, that whatever we've been through, we've been through it, and God's allow us to go through it so that we can now turn around and minister to people who are just like us and who are going through that stuff now. You know, so I think that's, that's what's being important. Why don't you start us off by telling us about? your background and, and, you know, what led up to you becoming a Christian and then, you know, eventually what led up to uh, the book. Yeah, well, I, I, before for, you say that, Jim, let me, yeah. let me just point out here. I'm, I'm just looking at some of the things that people have said about this book. Um, because w- what's amazing is you come at it from the perspective of, you know, this is a cold case file. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, you do work on cold case files. So right, that's all I do. This is amazing to me. Like, you, you mentioned how unique of an approach. I have to say, I've never seen this approach. In fact, Josh McDowell said, Cold Case Christianity is a fantastic book. I wish I had this resource. When I first examined the Christian faith, it would have answered many of my questions and helped set me on the track to truth. Now that, I mean, that's the endorsement from the man himself. He's saying, how much did I you have to pay him for that? Yeah. Gosh, I tell you, I, I gotta be honest with you. When, when people first responded to the book, I mean, what I've learned in this process, you probably learned this too, when you were talking to people about your book before you actually published, I, I couldn't believe the kindness and the uh, generosity of people in this field. Uh, I mean, I was very new to it. I didn't know many people. Um, I sent the book cold to a lot of folks. Maybe I met them one time at a conference, something like that, you know, and I would send this book out just uh, figuring, hey, I better send it out to 100 people because one or two are going to say yes. And, and uh, you know, I, I was amazed at the response I got. And, and now, of course, I've developed, you know, much more committed relationships with these folks, uh, you know, like Lee Strobel. Lee was another guy who was just I remember I met him one time at a conference where I was the he was a session speaker and I was the break like a breakout session like you know basically hey if you're if you're not we're at a camp a men's retreat and if you don't want to go fishing you can go over here and listen to Jim that's that's kind of like you know how they position my my talk and so I was at the very you know bottom of this and here I am in, in the most part just an uh, awestruck you know because here Lee, Lee Strobel is here you know speaking and I loved his work so. I approached him and I said, hey, can I send you a copy of this just to see if you would be willing to just kind of get behind it? Because I think the publisher was, was still looking at it, wasn't quite sure what they were going to do with it. And I knew that Lee's endorsement would, would really go a long way. And so Lee writes back and, and he says, yeah, this is great. Do you want me to write the foreword? And wow. I thought to myself, are you for real? Is this guy for real? I mean, I just, I mean, maybe I'm overly uh, you know, enthusiastic about these guys who are doing this work who who I admire so much, but I, I thought that that kind of general, and I saw that over and over and over again with people who were making the case for Christianity, if it was J.P. Moreland, if it was Paul huh. Copan, if it was Mark Middleberg, if it was Rick Warren, I don't care who it was, uh, they were eager to, to help. And you know what it's done for me, guys? It's, it's made me realize I'm looking around in my own world, and I'm asking myself, who out there? is a guy who's trying to do the same thing I was doing a year ago. Who can I help from what little platform I have yeah. now? Who can I help? Because it just, it just, when you're helped like that, when you're served like that by people who you can see Christ through them so obviously, 
it, it, it did shame me, I guess, in some way. Yeah. I felt like, wow, yeah. I, I, who am I? I mean, I, and why am I not more, more like that? I mean, it, it encouraged me to try to do, do better, to be better, to, to, to offer mm. more. And so I, I, I'm really amazed at this community of Christians. I, I think what's, what's most unique about your story is it's actually the exact opposite of what happened to Peyton. With Peyton, it was pretty much, uh, we don't want to be associated with your book. Um, your ideas are too crazy. Please stay away. Yeah, my, my, my book, right, Church Zero, Cha-ching, is the kind of book where you stick it in, you know, if you, if you locked it up in a cupboard in the church overnight, um, you would come back the next morning and the church would be burnt down, right? So it's, it's got that kind of thing. But here's the deal, right? Like the kind of spirit that you're talking about is what's unique to church. Well, it's not unique, but... It's definitely typical of church planning. So we would find the same thing, that there's generosity. There's all these guys out there yeah. they are doing something. There's not a lot of attention given to it. There's not a lot of priority in churches given to it. And apologetics is the same. Both of them are frontline. And one thing that we've been very clear to do in both uh, Church Planner Magazine and the Church Planner Podcast is to establish a very strong link between church planting and apologetics. We know that, you know, basically both of us are on the front line. Both of us are constantly dialoguing with uh, unchurched people, skeptics, hearing the latest thoughts, the latest trends. And so, you know, even if you feel, you know, because evangelism is is what's underpinning uh, both of these things, um, we, we felt, you know, our, our guys need, as they're going to be talking with non-believers all the time, they need to know who's out there and who are the thinkers, the great Christian thinkers out there. So that's very important. Obviously, people are relating right now to C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis uh, was writing 50, 60 years ago to Britain's context, which is identical now to today in America, to America's context. So he's had a resurgence in popularity simply because America is now where Britain was 60 years ago. And so, you know, he's more relevant. Of course, you know, 20, 30 years ago in the 80s, uh, where people were just packing into megachurches, he wasn't as relevant, right? But, yeah. but now people need him. And so your book is kind of a, a need. We've got uh, people like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. We've got the new atheist movement. Um, obviously, Christopher Hitchens is, is, is now a believer. He's, um, you know, died and... Uh, what you mean is at least he's now aware of the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. Or the other. Well, Absolutely. I can tell you, this is, what you said is so important because uh, I think you're right. There's a resurgence right now we all experience. People have been talking about it for a couple of years in apologetics. I mean, we see that there's you know, the number of people who are doing this kind of work are on the rise. The number of titles are on the rise. Uh, probably the total number of sales is on the rise. Um, uh, who knows? But the, but the point I'm trying to make is that it's only because we are at that point in the culture where the questions are becoming paramount. And, and a lot of what we used to be comfortable with, when I first got saved, I, I was a, a non-believer until I was 35. So I was somebody who came to it late. I didn't have anybody to, to really model what Christianity was. I didn't have anybody in my life who was a Christian who was you know kind of sitting next to me. My wife was definitely more interested than I was, and she was kind of raised a cultural Catholic. So she, you know, she would have been uh, very comfortable to go to church. But if you asked her, you know, what's the? I mean, I remember one time asking her as we were getting interested in this, you know, what's the whole cross thing about? You know, she couldn't tell me. She just didn't have any. We just didn't have any upbringing in which somebody had a robust understanding of what Christianity was and could share it with us, or did share it with us. So. So uh, we came to it really cold. I mean, just really from zero. And reading the Gospels, uh, I read them, you know, because I was interested in Jesus as a wise sage. Because I worked in this, walked in this huge me- mega church, 
and that was the you know the pitch you know the pitch that the the mega church pastor had kind of threw at me was you know this guy's worth listening to because he's smart and you know you'd be better off if you listened to his advice and for someone who's a selfish self-focused atheist like I was that was the perfect way in and so I was willing to steal the wisdom of Jesus and um, that's what got me started reading the Gospels, and that's what started this whole journey. But, but I can tell you, as a youth pastor, years later, and here I was working with high schoolers, watching the high schoolers walk away from college in the first semester of the year they would leave us. The first semester, I couldn't believe it. I thought, man, I'm a train wreck when it comes to pastoring. But, but I realized that this is really a, a problem that was endemic of of uh, the entire of all Christendom, really. And so that got me interested in taking it and saying, well, why have I all this time not been doing with my own students, not been taking them down the same road that I went down? See, my background was in the arts before I became a detective. And so when I first became a youth pastor, I was in, I was just enthralled with Leonard Sweet, with guys who would really talk about a, an approach to ministry that was very robust and very um, much influenced by the arts, by and I mean, I had I was really involved with experience. Every Sunday, I was trying to craft something that was musically driven, visually driven, experiential. I mean, very much. Um, you know, I just was in love with the arts aspect of what I would design for my students, and and that that was impotent in terms of keeping students and Christian in, in their belief system past my you know their experience with me. I saw it. I saw it firsthand. And that's when I said, what am I doing here? I mean, I mean I'm going to go back and just do it the way I did. I'm going to show these students what was so persuasive for me. And, and, and that, that was so much more successful. I mean, I, it, became something for, it became the way we did ministry from that point forward. We got rid of every snowboard trip, every wakeboard trip. You know, I'm in Southern California, so every winter you're in the mountains snowboarding. Every summer you're at the beach on, on some kind of beach trip. It's all a lot of fun and games, and you know, we might do some service projects, but not many. We turned everything into apologetics. Everything became, how do you know this is true? And how does this compare to other worldviews? And, and, what, and, and, and evangelism, basically. And so what do we do with this now? How do we share this truth with others? And so it changed the way we did ministry. And, and the book was really just um, a reflection of, I mean, I was teaching this material to my students for years, and one year we were in Berkeley, on a Berkeley missions trip, and I was teaching this material to, I, was, I think I went there with that year with John, with uh, Sean McDowell, and I uh, was there teaching his class uh, about the reliability of Scripture, and he saw that what I had been doing for years and said, hey, you know, you ought to write a book about this. And I said, well, I don't have time. I mean, I just know I'm in the middle of casework. There's no way I could do it. But my wife said, are you stupid? Like, you know, Sean says that he's going to help you, you know, get the book in the hands of somebody who might be interested in publishing it. You should write a proposal. So I wrote the proposal, and a year later we had a book. And uh, but really, it's the stuff I've been teaching students. And so a lot of it, you know, in my in my teaching sessions when I go around the country and teach this material, it's very visual. It's still as visual as it was with students. The book, of course, has to be filled with words. And, um, and I try to put some illustrations in there. Those are illustrations that I I drew. Uh, they're really from the PowerPoint, really. I used to use, and just kind of you know, I just found a way to make it. Um, to turn it all into line drawings because that was the cheapest way to get those all those illustrations in that book, but uh, I think that they're still effective enough. You can you can kind of follow along with me and see what you know the chain of custody is of the New Testament or the uh, the circumstantial case for the early dating or whatever it may be where you're trying to draw a timeline or or do something like that. I mean, I think you can see it well enough in the illustrations to to get it to get it done. But yeah, so that's really how the book emerged. It just came out of my, my experience as a youth pastor. 
And then when I planted as an adult uh, a congregation, um, I every every I mean we, I stayed in that 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 lane. I mean I felt like that is my lane. I, I'm an evidentialist. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we would do our line-by-line expository kind of stuff on Wednesdays, but on every weekend meeting, that was two hours of case-making. And, I mean, we wow. we kept people there. <laughs> I mean, but they were interested. You know, this is, this is like you said, I think people are at a place right now where yeah. they want to know, is this true, and how could I know if yeah. it is? Yeah. So I think it's important to move in that direction. I, I do, too. I, I think that what you're looking at nowadays is Sunday morning. You know, I talk with guys who are in the missional communities a lot because, you know, we get a lot of church planners coming to us. And, and missional community is great because it's an it's emphasized discipleship. We had a guy named Bo Corsetto on a, a, a couple weeks ago, and, and Bo kind of outlined the problem that he saw with the missional movement. And the same concern that I have, which is namely that, um, you're not hearing evangelism talked about a lot. So you gather a bunch of Christians together. They're in missional community. It's great. Discipleship is happening. Evangelism is not. And in fact, evangelism, it, not that it has to. Missional community can be an awesome vehicle for evangelism. I would say right. specifically uh, Crowded House, Steve Timmis, uh, doing something called Crazy Eights, has made um, – missional communities explosive same with the the underground church in china and iran really as you said there's nothing new under the sun they're doing that right but in the missional community you're seeing a lack of talk about evangelism and so one of the things that i always tell people is you don't have to choose between missional community and sunday attractional outreach models So you can do both, you know, house to house and in the temple courts. New Testament seemed to, particularly in Jerusalem, engage both methods. So uh, the the reality is um, Sundays for us are outreach. And so we've always got our Mm -hmm. eyes towards the non-believer. Um, the I can't believe you're such a heretic. You would make your Sunday experience be uh, something other than uh, an inward. I'm, I'm going to forgive you. I'm I am a heretic, of course, because because I mean this is this is exactly how I came to faith. Now, now I I was a part of a church that saw Sunday the exact same way. Now, now look, at some point, I became impatient and selfish about that experience, and I left it. And then 15 years later, I found myself back there again. Yeah. A little less judgmental, had been through the ringer, had been through all the different forms of church you could go through: mega church, smaller church, house church, you name it. I was in all of them, and realized that I guess a little more mature. I see the value now. I see. Look, I got saved in that church. I mean, my gosh, God used that church in such a powerful way in my yeah. own life, and I wanted to judge it later. Yeah, come on. I mean, yeah, this just goes to show how fallen I am. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, so I, I mean, this is why I say now, if you're in a house church and you're loving it and you think that's the way to go, God bless you. And if you're in a mega church and you're loving it, and you got saved there. That's the way to go. God bless you. I mean, I think the idea that there's what happens is we get in whatever form of church we're in and we think this is the form of church, and all yeah. the rest of you guys are all messed up, you know, and we've yeah, got it well, down. Jay, so I was going to ask you. So tell tell us a little bit what Pete was asking earlier, and I'm you know I kind of are you finally going to come back to that, Peyton? I am, yeah, because it was a great question. Sorry, Pete. Here's the deal. You know, talk, tell us a little bit about your career as a cold case detective, what that means, and how that applies to your approach to apologetics. Because that, to me, when I saw your title and I saw the cover, I thought, man, now that's a book. 
I've never seen that approach to apologetics and evangelism. So kind of, I mean, that's a unique perspective you've got there. It's an experience that not many apologists have. So tell us what's unique about your book, your approach. Tell us about your career, cold case detective. What does that mean? What did well, you okay, do? So I, and I how worked, do you approach evangelism that way? Okay, so, so I work these, these cases that are unsolved murders because there's no statute of limitations on murder, so they don't ever close. Uh, robberies close, burglaries close. At some point, if you can't catch the guy, you're never going to catch the guy. But uh, murders stay open, and so you can work them 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. As long as there's people <laughs> who are still alive you can talk to, you can still work these cases. So, so that's what I've been doing for about the last 12 years, 13 years, and it's been a great fun. I really enjoy it. They are popular cases. They make the headlines. Um, you know, we've been on Dateline three times. We've got another case on for Dateline, which is starting in uh, about a month. So, I mean, these are cases, and they're always high profile, and you know, the best attorneys show up to fight against you. And so it's just it's a lot of fun to work these cases. But uh, you learn a few things about evidence, and this is what I thought was was in some ways frustrating for me as an apologist, is that, look, everyone uh, will provide you with a piece of evidence or wants to provide you with a piece of evidence. But some of the problem is that, that we don't really understand the nature of evidence and what the ground rules are when you go into a criminal trial. So, so if you've got an argument, is that evidence? Uh, let's see. I mean, I know I would think, you know, witness, is that evidence? Is uh, DNA is evidence, but what kind of evidence is it? And so understanding the broad categories of evidence and how these things work together to make a case, I thought was the one piece that was still kind of missing from from the apologetics uh, world, you know, and uh, that's the one thing I wanted to bring in. I get so tired, you know, you watch these cases on the East Coast where someone gets arrested and they're on court TV for six months and people will say, well, you know, it's just a circumstantial case. It's going to be awfully hard to, it's just a circumstance. Well, look, every case I've ever worked is just circumstantial, okay? Do you even know what that means? What is circumstantial evidence? Is it powerful? Is it useful? What are, what are the rules for circumstances? Is it different than, there's two forms of evidence. There's direct evidence evidence and indirect evidence. They sometimes we'll call indirect evidence circumstantial evidence. So you've got indirect and direct evidence. That's it. That's that's the only kinds of categories you have. And and how do these things play? How do you weigh these kinds of things? How do you evaluate circumstantial or direct evidence and indirect evidence? So those are the kinds of things I think the book tries to do. And then we turn a corner with that and say, okay, now that you understand the rules of evidence, now that you understand how evidence comes together to make a case, do we as Christians have any of that stuff? And if we do, how do we assemble it? And if we did assemble it, would it be persuasive? And that's kind of what the second section of the book does. So I'm really staying in the context of the uh, Gospels and staying in the context of Christianity. The next book I'm doing right now is on theism broader, but this book is very focused on Christianity and about whether or not the case is persuasive for Christianity. And, and of course, you know, I mean, all of us, I mean, you write a book like this. I can tell you this. On your, if you'd have started a blog the day you wrote Church Zero, you would have got some pushback probably, right? Because you know that some of the concepts you're going to throw out are not going to be maybe well-received by everybody. Well, I can tell you, if you do an apologetics book where you're making a case, an affirmative case for Christianity, and you have a blog, if you open up your blog comments, stand by. You're going to have about a gazillion um, you know, negative comments from atheists that are going to you know, find you and want to spend time you know, uh, criticizing your work. That's just the nature of the kind of new atheism we're experiencing right now. Sure. I think Dawkins and, and, and uh, Sam Harris and a guy named Peter Bogosian up in Portland, these kinds of guys are more aggressive, more hostile, more derogatory in their comments, and that's what has been adopted by their followers. So you have to be kind of thick-skinned about it. And I know that there's, you know, in many ways, um, I think that some of this stuff, Frank Turek and I were talking about this, and he wrote a book called Having a Faith to Be an Atheist. And that title is pretty provocative, right? And 
So we get we get some pushback from folks. Um, and if you make a claim that this is true, you can make a claim that, hey, it's true for you. I like it. I'm comfortable with it. That's not so, so provocative. But if you make it true that it's a claim that it's objectively true for all of us, it will stand by. You're going to get some pushback. So I've experienced that in the last year. It's been interesting. It's been it, it sharpens you. It, it certainly vets some of your ideas. How and, do you deal uh, with those people when well, they come on and uh, they they come out swinging? They're angry. How do you deal with them? Well, I think I, I I've learned to be very calm about it because um, you know when you when you I feel like. If you're at a place where you know that you have an evidential, uh, you, you're on firm evidential ground, you feel like you're in a place where I've, I've tested this, I've looked at it, I don't, I don't, there's not a surprise waiting for me around the corner. It's not as though I, there's something that somebody can reveal to me that I haven't already looked at. If you get to that level, um, you know, no one can, if you know you, if you know your wife and you know your relationship with your wife and someone comes along and tells you your wife is cheating on you, they can say whatever they want. If I, if I know, if I, if I know you know, you're in a better place uh, to be calm about it. You're not going to yeah. knee-jerk every time someone or every time she's late from going someplace, you're not going to be suspicious. If, if You have no confidence then, apparently, in the relationship. And I have great confidence in the evidence we have for the supporting Christianity, so much so that I'm not going to do a fight-or-flight kind of response when I'm first attacked or first uh, criticized. I don't need it to, to react harshly. I don't need to react in a panic as though, oh my gosh, what's going to destroy everything I believe. I don't feel that way because I've got enough um, evidence to support what I believe, and I'm pretty comfortable. So I'd much rather respond from a calm position of certainty than a rather nervous, reflexive position of uncertainty. Hmm. And, and so I think that that's what you see is when somebody, and I think that's all it really shows, is when somebody responds viciously or personally to a, a concept or a claim, it does expose something about their own level of confidence. And I certainly, if nothing else, I don't want people to think I'm not confident because I am confident. Yeah. So I try to be very calm in my response. And, and, and sometimes you have to pick your, your, your... I'll give you an example of this. If you're writing a blog every day of a thousand words, and I try to do that every day, um, if you're writing a blog every day of a thousand words, you really don't have much margin or much energy left or much time left to, to do another thousand words in the comment section. So you have to be very, I think, um, wise about where your thousand words is going to go every day. And, yeah. and so I, I would much rather, if there's, a, if there's a, a challenge that I think is worthy that's offered in the comment section somewhere, I would much rather write another blog tomorrow uh, that addresses the, the challenge than spend another thousand words in the comment section. Now, I know Absolutely. a lot of people, that's that's like, you know, internet heresy that you wouldn't engage somebody in the comment section. But it really, a lot of it is just wanting to be a good steward of my time with my family as a husband, as a father, you know, these are things I still want to be good at and those take time. And so I can only do so much. Now I I like that because that that shows me that if I'm reading your blog then I'm actually reading responses to actual questions and challenges. So what's, what's the name of that blog? Well, I I post every day at coldcasechristianity.com and you'll see if you go there, I, oh, that's right. I, I did the cha-ching thing. Then, oh, man. So you baited me into see, that. See, see you knew the answer there? to that. See you could have just said what the name of the blog was, but no, you had to have me say it. Anyway, so, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, even that blog, I've closed the comments there because at some point, and what I've done is I said, hey, if you want to comment, I give you a link. You go to the Facebook page, fans of coldcasechristianity.com. Cha-ching, I get it. And then you can post your comment there. <laughs> And the reason why I do that is because, boy, I just was reading an article last week. Who wrote it? Maybe you saw it. Talking about um, why we act differently when we are anonymous on online. 
Mm. Why we are we are more than willing to say things we we really shouldn't say or do things we shouldn't do uh, if we are remain anonymous. So at least if you can force people out into their uh, Facebook profile and make the make the comment from their Facebook profile, uh, they're a little less likely to um, you know create a pseudonym and and uh, just blast you. You know, so I try to do it that way. But but I also like you know I I contribute at apologetics.com. I have contributed at Stand to Reason, at uh, Cross Examined, at Christianity.com, at Breakpoint, at uh, Conversant Life. So I try to put a couple of blogs in all those places every week, and uh, that's where you get all kinds of response. Hey, I wanted to ask you guys a question. Uh, did you guys see in um, we're supposed to be doing a podcast, but we're just we're just involved in a conversation. So maybe maybe I should be more focused. But did you see the Ron Edmondson post a couple of weeks, last week? It's from a, written by a guest blogger who's 23 years old who wrote "Why the Church Isn't Reaching My Unchurched Friends." Did you see that post? No, I didn't see it. No. Okay, well, um, it's a young uh, uh, 23-year-old uh, guest blogger at, Ru- at Ron Edmondson's blog. Uh, and it's called Why the Church Isn't Reaching My Unchurched Friends. And, of course, you know, a lot of it's going to come down to, you know, I'm 23 years old and I go to church. I am rare, she says. I think it's a, a lady who's writing this. It might be a guy. Anyway, the point is, no, it's a guy named Jordan. And he talks about how, you know, he, what, is he, what do you think is the one word that he thinks he wants in his church? As a 23-year-old, what do you think he wants his church to be more than anything else? Authentic. authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Authentic. yeah, authentic. Which most of us read that and we go, oh my gosh, really? Please, how long have we been listening to this, right? But what I think is interesting about this is what he describes, how he describes authentic. And he talks about how you know he's got struggles, he has his sins, and he has his doubts. Hmm. And what he wants is a church that's willing to be honest. And and if you don't, don't pretend like you have all the answers, if you don't have all the answers, let, let's share in the journey of our doubts as well as our sins and other struggles and all these things we are. And I thought what was so interesting as I read through the article over and over again was the point that really for young people, responding to their doubts is at least going to be some aspect of what it is they want from their church family, to be able to answer their questions. And and so that's what he said. What happened was he says he he uh, his life in college was the hardest years of his life. He says he says for a while it seemed like every week brought a new disaster I had never faced before. As one event piled on top of another, I became a mess. He says my usual happiness turned to sadness, my usual good decisions turned to bad decisions, and my usual faith turned to nothing but questions. Mm. Now, questions can be more than just, you know, questions can be driven by all kinds of things. They don't have to be apologetic in nature in terms of, you know, not quite sure if the Bible's reliable, all these kinds of standard questions. But I think that's that's always going to be part of it. And in my experience with the students that I've seen walk away is that that's a large part of it. It's really about intellectual doubt. A lot of it is, especially when they're struggling with other issues and they're thinking, hey, if that other worldview over there can offer an alternative story of origins, an an alternative story of redemption, and it'll allow me to sleep with my girlfriend... (laughs) Dude, I'm gone. Okay, yeah. I'm going to be over there, and and that's a lot of what we want to be able to do as 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 Christian leaders is we want to be able to say, hey, there's good reason to believe that this is the truth, and so when it calls you to deny yourself, when it calls you to uh, to to put down your desire, it's not because we're we're trying to control you and we're trying to. It's because this is the truth. This is how life really is. This is the nature of the world. But if they can see, if they actually can can, can substitute a different worldview that will allow them to chase, chase their passions. I think a lot of young people, and they, like this guy, he's saying you know, basically one disaster after another until finally life becomes a mess. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, give us a give us kind of a glimpse, almost a taster of the book. Like, okay, how, what's the first place that you turn to when you look at Christianity as a cold case file? How do you start the argument? Well, it's all going to come down to eyewitness statements in, in most in most of these cases. You're going to get little pieces. Now, you may not get somebody who comes up and says, "I saw him do the murder." That would be great, and that would be a piece of direct evidence, because eyewitness statements of that nature are direct. They directly deal with, he's, he's actually making a statement about what happened, how it happened. Those kinds of pieces of evidence are called direct evidence. Everything else is circumstantial. It's not that every eyewitness uh, statement is going to necessarily point out who the suspect is and make a claim, I saw the suspect do it. Sometimes it's, you know, hey, I saw him come home two hours late. And when he came home, he was really sweating hard, and you know, he went right to the bathroom, and he washed up. I wasn't sure why he was washing, and then he took his clothes off, and he had them in the washer right away. So you're kind of wondering, what's, what's that? Now, nothing about that statement tells you that he went out and murdered somebody, but it does seem awfully suspicious, and a witness is providing you with that information. But it's circumstantial in the sense that it's not describing exactly, you know, his, yeah, I didn't see him actually commit a murder. So you've got to put the case together in a different way. And so the first thing I try to do in the book is show how powerful, um, you know, cumulative circumstantial cases are that are based, and, and some of these can include an eyewitness account, an eyewitness statement, but sometimes it's going to just include a number of other circumstantial. And so how this is typically described in court is this way. If somebody goes outside and comes inside and tells you after they come inside, hey, it's raining outside. That's considered direct evidence. An eyewitness is going to tell you it's raining outside. On the other hand, if that person comes in, doesn't say anything to you, but they're dripping wet, they've got a raincoat on, on they take off the raincoat, they, they close their umbrella, and they brush the water off of it and stick it in the umbrella holder. From that indirect evidence, you can infer that it's raining outside. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't it possible they walked by a sprinkler head that's overflowed or walked underneath the leaky eave or something? Well, yeah, but did they know in advance to put a raincoat on and an umbrella? I mean, who does that? The most reasonable inference is, is that it's raining outside. So we really have to make a couple of distinctions for people. What is circumstantial evidence? How do we build circumstantial cases? Two, what is the distinction between reasonable and possible? Anything's possible, but not everything's reasonable. And these are the some, some simple concepts you go into. We have to train jurors to understand these distinctions so that when we finally hand them the case, they can actually go in the jury room and make a reasonable conclusion. So a lot of what I do in the book is to try to train people up on the rules of evidence. And as I do it, I, I give examples from Scripture, I give examples from casework to help now, people see that. Powerful. That is powerful. The reason why I track with all this stuff, I listen to Christopher Hitchens. I, I actually find him immensely entertaining. I do too. Um, he's a smart dude. Yep. Um, you know, I, I'm helped as a Christian by listening to him, not because, you know, he, oh, whoops, that's me. Sorry, my bad. Are and Mike Bonomos. Are you, you tell me you have a phone ringing while we're doing a podcast? I am so sorry. Seriously? How unprofessional of me. I'm going to bring the dog in so we can bark right in the background. <laughs> no, Pete has the dog. I have okay. the train. The phone is anybody. Anyone okay, can. Could be anybody. Well, as, my, as I say that right now, I think my phone is actually not silenced. Let me silence it so that nobody yeah. can blame me for doing that too. Okay, cool. So, Got it. so here's the deal, right? Like I listen to these guys. I listen to, um, you know, the atheist show on YouTube. The um, right. You know, right. make a believer out of me. The the Maboom show. I mean, I I listen to this stuff because. Um, you know, I'm interested. I've been in Europe for 12 years, right? That jacks you up a bit. Yeah. So I watch this stuff and, and the evidentialist, uh, those of you that have been listening going, what in the heck is an evidentialist? An evidentialist is a guy who says, I don't believe because there's no evidence. 
that points me to believe, right? So right, I right. believe, but there's no evidence for God. And what is amazing about what you've just said there uh, is that you have to teach jurors about circumstantial evidence. You have to teach them about evidence. So something might be true, and someone might say, well, I don't have any evidence for it. And you're actually saying, no, wait a second. I have to teach you how this whole evidence thing works. So what I'm hearing you say is you're actually pulling a bit of a Maggie Thatcher now, right? Which is a good thing, right? You're actually changing the argument. You're saying, wait a second. You know, kind of like Princess Bride. You keep saying that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. Right? Yes, exactly. As, you know, as a matter of fact, you'll see that Hitchens or not Dawkins for sure will say, "You guys have no supporting evidence." I've seen him several times on in quote on, on, in print and at talks talk about how we lack all supporting any supporting evidence, and that's because he doesn't really understand what would qualify as evidence to begin with. So right. if you said, you know, um, um, if you're making a case, I've had cases where the, uh, one of the most critical things was. Uh, not a physical piece of evidence at the room, but it was a timing issue. How you know, uh, there's no way he could get there in the time that he's suggesting he get there, or so that it's some other any anything and everything is evidence. Um, the fact that that, uh, that that the gospels include the names of of minor towns in the regions around Jerusalem, the regions around all of of Israel. The fact that they look look at the the the, the, the Gnostic gospels that come hundreds of years later. Uh, they don't include anything other than usually than like maybe Jerusalem and a couple other major towns because they're written so far away from the action that nobody even knows what the minor towns are. But the Gospels are replete with incidental details that are geographically sound, whereas the Gnostic Gospels eliminate any reference to any geography in any cities. Now, that might not sound like evidence, but it is evidence. I mean, it's one more piece of a case I have to look at to decide, well, is this Gnostic actually... You know, Thomas is great. The Gospel of Thomas is great because it avoids any reference to geography. You know, it's a series of statements of Jesus. Well, you can do that. You can do that 400 years later, 200 years later, 100 years later, in a region of the world that's far removed from where it's supposed to actually happen, because you're never going to reference anything that's going to put it, locate it, in the geography in which it actually occurred. The use Mm -hmm. of proper nouns. What kinds of names are you using? You know, the names that were available for Jewish men and women in Egypt were very different in the first century than the names that were used for men and women, Jewish names, in the area of Palestine. So if you're writing from Egypt or North Africa or someplace else, you wouldn't know necessarily what are the most popular names in the region. It turns out these gospel writers happen to know what the most popular names are. Well, they know that because they're writing about events that actually occurred where they said they occurred, when they said they occurred. Now, is it that one piece why I decide it's reliable? Of course not. And the nature of circumstantial cases is, I call it death by a thousand paper cuts, and that sounds terrible, but the idea here is that if I've got 40 pieces of evidence that I bring in front of a jury, all of which are best explained by the involvement of this defendant as the killer, you've probably got good reason to believe that this defendant is the killer. Because these 40 things have to be explained some other way, in which he's just unlucky that 40 stars happen to have aligned perfectly to make him look guilty, or... They point to him because he's the cause of all these things. He's the one unifying causal factor. So I think a lot of this is just understanding how to put together a circumstantial case. And so the first half of the book really just tries to lay out how we do this kind of of work. And the second half says, okay, let's get serious now. If we're going to look at the Gospels 
as uh, anything other than just purely fiction. I mean, maybe there's some modification of fiction. Maybe there's something about the. I mean, are, do we have any good reason to believe these are actually might really be eyewitness accounts that that Mark might actually be penning the the eyewitness account of Peter, as Papias says in the first century. He's writing down Peter's teaching about what he experienced with Jesus, and you know, Mark's chronicling all this, that Luke is actually doing what he says and talking to the people who were really there and chronicling out the story of Jesus, that John's actually acting and Matthew are actually acting as eyewitnesses. If we have any reason to believe that's true, and, and if we do, how would we test them? The same way we would test an eyewitness in a court trial to see if they, we should trust them as reliable. And that's a template that's pretty easy to move through, and I try to move people through the four-point template that I think is the best and most reasonable way to determine eyewitness reliability. And then the problem you have is, if you get through all that, and you determine that the Gospels are reliable, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? And what is the thing that's keeping you out? I mean, I, I would have said as an atheist, okay, okay, I'm okay with, okay, yeah, okay, some of these things happened. But the miracles didn't happen. The resurrection didn't happen. And so I had to move myself through that process of saying, well, how early were they written? Were they changed over time? How early were these claims about the resurrection offered? Does, is, is Jesus a legend that grows over time? I mean, looking at all those issues, and, and this is something we have to do also, by the way, when we have a witness who comes to us 30 years after the crime, right before we were getting ready to go to trial, and makes an offer, a statement about, here's what happened. Well, did this story change over time? We have a process we use to try to see if someone's story has changed over time, and we can use that same process with the Gospels to see if they've changed over time. And that's going to at least tell us that, hey, if it's written early and the claims never changed and people died for those claims, they said, no, this is what happened, we saw it early and we died defending it. If those kinds of things happen, we have to really at least consider what they're saying and, and take it seriously. And, and, and really when I examined what it was that was holding me back, it wasn't so much the nature or lack of evidence. It was the fact that um, I had a presupposition against the supernatural. <clears throat> Pardon me. And I was willing to to let that presupposition rule the day. And that presupposition allowed me great personal freedom because I was my own God. And I didn't have to account uh, or I really bend my knee to anybody. So I had to ask myself, what's keeping you out? Is it is it really the evidence that's keeping you out? Or is it something else? And I think that every one of us, if we were to look at the evidence fairly, would find ourselves in the same place. The evidence really does, um, it holds up, <coughs> pardon me, and, it, uh, and it, you know, it, it passes the test that I would offer it as, as uh, in, in the case. And then the question becomes, okay, what's keeping me out now? What, what, what's really the problem here? It's not the evidence. It's something else. Let me ask you um, what I'm really curious about. And I know we kind of gotten uh, around this a bit, but you mentioned that you got saved when you were 35. And, um, yeah. uh, you know, you you refer to yourself as an atheist prior to that. What was it that, that happened that caused you to uh, accept Christianity? To I mean, I, I know it was more than just like one, uh, you know, time. I mean, it was probably a, a process yeah. with you. No, but, it definitely was a process. It was a process of six, uh, four to six months probably. I mean, I can't tell you exactly. People always ask me, well, how long did it take? I don't even remember what, what day it was when I first walked into that church and sat down and listened to the first sermon. I'd never been in an evangelical church prior to that. And I mean, other than what, what caused you to go to that church? What, what was it? Well, that... 
I had a buddy who had been asking me to join him. Tell me it was a postcard in the mail. Tell me it was a postcard in the mail. I wish I could tell you. Yeah, it was a marketing strategy. Guys came to my door, and no, I don't even. I just had a buddy who had been asking me to go, and and uh, he had been asking for a long time. I maybe maybe, oh gosh, I mean maybe a couple of couple of three years, he had been asking me to go. and I always blew him off and didn't want to go. And, and my wife was more more open to the idea than I was. <clears throat> so one Saturday, I, I said, look, if you want to go tomorrow, I'll, I'll be happy. I, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that I had a crisis point and this was nothing like that. It was just, if you want to go, I was more than happy to go as an atheist. My dad's been mm-hmm. doing that for his entire life. I mean, he'll go to church with me. He'll, he, when I was a, a pastor, he would come to my church. He'll sing the hymns. He's not a believer. And he'll tell you he's not going to be a believer. He's 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 um, he's glad it works for you, and he wants to honor that. And he'll come and sing hymns with you. He likes that the, with the kind of worldview it produces. He thinks it's effective. He likes the values it teaches. But he's not a believer. And I would have been the same kind of guy. But if, if I, what really used to irritate me is when I talk to Christians who have no way to defend what they believe. Oh my gosh, that especially cops who you know were such evidentialists. And then I, you know, so let me get this right: you're, you you've examined the evidence on about every aspect of your professional career, and then when it gets to the most important questions, uh, most important decisions you'll make as a, as a as a private person, you know, your personal decisions about worldview, you've got nothing about upon which to base these. I mean, you can't even answer why is the why do you trust the Bible? Mm. What, 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 why should I trust the Bible? And most of my Christian friends really didn't have a good answer. And I could not believe it. And I, that really made me angry, and I would mock. Uh, and I, I, can, I was talking about this yesterday with a friend who was the guy I was mocking with. Uh, you know, we, we would make fun of these Christians who really seemed so certain of themselves as police officers until you asked these kinds of questions, and suddenly they just crumble. And I thought, that's just so weak. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, doesn't get it done for me. And uh, so that's what was my position. And, and when I got to church and, and listened to this for the first time, I spent probably four months going through. I bought my first Bible. I, I started to do a forensic statement analysis, which is a process we do with crooks uh, on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I really became more and more convinced as I, as I read through this that, man, and then finally, I had to deal with what <laughs> Wait, is the first again. chapter. You did a, you first... did a, a forensic? Say that again. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I was well, thinking well, the same. Well, like, I love that you actually, you know, you're probably the only believer I've ever met that said, well, as soon as I started believing in Jesus, I did a forensic analysis on the gospel. <laughs> well, I mean, I wasn't a believer yet. I was still trying to figure out if I wanted to even take a step. I mean, is there any, um, sometimes people will uh, uh, murder suspects if you um, uh, interview them, and then you have them write out everything they did on the day of the murder from the moment they got up to the moment they went to bed. And you give them a limited number of lines they can use. You give them an ink pen. You don't allow them to make uh, corrections you can't see. And and then you start to examine that statement under a certain number of principles that we use called forensic statement analysis. You can actually get a lot of information, uh, learn a lot about attitudes, about potentially what time of day uh, he did the crime, how he's compressing time, expanding time. There's lots of different elements in this. And so I did this with the, the, the Gospel of Mark because here Papias said in the first century that Mark is penning for Peter. Well, if that's the case, I should see some fingerprint of Peter uniquely in the Gospel of Mark that I don't see anywhere else. I mean, I, I should see that. I should see something about the Gospel of Mark that makes it look like Mark's got unique access to Peter. And so that's what I was looking for. And, and, uh, but, you know, this is one, one part of a larger case that I was trying to build. And, and then I finally got to the point, and it's the first chapter of the book, when it comes down to don't be a know-it-all. Don't, okay, so, so what's keeping me out? 
what, okay, so I'm, I'm, in every way I could test this, it, it passed, except that it, can, it contains the miraculous. It contains descriptions of a miraculous event. And I would have said immediately that recategorizes it from history to mythology. History does not include uh, statements of miracles. You know, you would, that doesn't happen. So, so history has to be miracle-free. It has to be very naturalistic in its approach. And so that was the thing that was keeping me out. And then I simply had to ask, okay, but if you're examining an account to see if something miraculous really did happen, how fair are you if you start off with the presumption that nothing miraculous can happen? You can't go in thinking you know who the suspect is before you start an investigation. You have to at least say, I think I know who it is, but I'm going to put that on the shelf for now and see where the evidence leads, because I don't want my presupposition about the suspect to color the way I look at every piece of evidence in this room. And I've had that happen right before my eyes. I have a story about it in the book where you know a senior partner did something very similar to this, had a conclusion in advance of who we thought the suspect should be, and allowed that to change the way he saw everything. Mm. So I had to ask myself, okay, I'm not in favor of it. I'm not going to let that change the way I see it. But I've got to stop being against it to just look at it neutrally or do my mm. best to look at it neutrally. This is how we ask jurors to behave. Let me look at it neutrally. And if I did that, if I didn't have a, a predisposition against the supernatural, I think you'd, you'd, you'd right away. I mean, if you vetted any other historical character the way that we have vetted Jesus over the years, Forget about the, the, the miracles. Take the miracles out for a second. If there were no miracles in the Gospels, there would be nobody who would doubt the wisdom and not, probably not embrace the wisdom and be living the wisdom of Jesus. He'd be considered up there with, I mean, probably the foremost uh, moral teacher of, 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 of the history of humanity. But yeah. when, you, when you add in the miracles, people suddenly go, eh, yeah, you know, yeah, maybe not. Uh, yeah, because that we're so uncomfortable with the supernatural and in, in the yeah. age of scientific reason we live in. So I think that, that the, our naturalism is what gets in the way. And I just had to say, if, if the question you're asking is, is supernaturalism true, you can't go in as a committed naturalist. You'll never come to the conclusion. You'll never, ever, you'll never, you know, be able to look at it without a bias. Yeah. That's, that was what, for me, was finally the thing I had to look at and say, okay, if I just put down my bias, where would I be? Okay, so now can I put down my bias? Interesting. Hmm. So, so that's that's really was part of my own journey. Now, look for a lot of people who will listen. I might come to a talk. I would do. You know, I do a lot of talks on college campuses, and I'll be at Rutgers in a week. Now, you do a talk at a college campus filled with students who are some some of them are very skeptical. I don't expect. I mean, I'm going to offer quite calmly what I believe was persuasive. I never say to people, "I'm going to prove this to you." No, I can offer you the evidence. Whether you think it proves something, that's up to you. But I can offer you what was persuasive for me. And I can try to do my best to warn you about what are presuppositions, how presuppositions can really color the way you see something. And after that, I think God will move as God will move. I mean, I, I, my job is to present the evidence the way I looked at it, the way I examined it, and then, of course, God does what God's going to do. So and do I'm you, fully um, aware of that. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely brilliant. Do you speak around at churches? Oh gosh! I mean, I, I wish I, I I can tell you that the first see the last year I was working full time. You know, where I worked the entire year, uh, and I had two cases that year that were Dateline cases that were in trial. I did thirty events that year, and I thought, man, I'm not going to be able to sustain this. So, I last year we wrote the book, and and I I worked a half a year, and then I retired in June and hired back in July to finish this last case. But I've really been working part time. And I did, I think, 50 events last year. And this year, we've already booked over 50 events. I think we'll probably do 
maybe 65. Um, wow. So yeah, you, you, a lot of it is, is, and again, like we talked about this, this is for you and I as authors, this is not another career. I don't need another career. I've got a pension. I could do nothing and pay my bills. This is ministry. We have to do this because we feel like God's called us to do it. And would you do it for nothing? Would you do it if, you know, there's no guarantee of another book? Or Of course. <laughs> this is ministry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we should be good examples of, of, of that because that's exactly what we're doing. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's what we're called to do is we look at this, and, and we have what you and I have what, we, what I would call, as we, and people have described it this way, we have a, now we have a writing ministry. Yeah. We think we're not authors. We just have a writing ministry. And that's what this is. This is an opportunity for people who are interested in these kinds of issues or have their own questions. You know, I get to see what people are Googling all the time when they find the website. You know, how do they find cold case? Oh, I'm not going to say it because you'll put that stupid ching in there. But you know, I'll, what, say what they, anyway. I'll say it for you, coldcasechristianity.com. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so if you're going to look for that, what are, you, what are you searching for? What are the questions that people have that they actually end up at this site? And uh, that's really encouraging when you see that and you realize, okay, that, that person's question got addressed. Now, it may not be an answer he finds sufficient or he's ready to hear, but at least he had a place to go get that answer. And uh, that, that's what we do. We, we have a writing ministry, and you hope that the work you do in books, the work you do speaking around the country, helps answer questions for people who are really seeking. And not everyone's seeking. You know that. A lot of people are there really to, to tell you why you're wrong. But there are people who are genuinely seeking, like I was years ago, and are just trying to work it out and, uh, and figure it out. And, and, man, if there's somebody like that, if I discover you're somebody like that, I'm going to ask for your phone number because I need to call you because somebody needs to walk you through the way I was walked through. Now, if you're just somebody who wants to tell me why I'm wrong, well, that's another story. Yeah. I get that. Those, I mean, I've been that kind of guy, too, in the past. But, I mean, you, know, you and I know that we're here to minister to those who are seeking answers. Absolutely. Do you ever go on debates at all? You know, I don't, and I'll tell you why. I, I, I love folks who do, like uh, William Lane Craig. I can't tell you how much respect I have for Bill Craig. Oh, my gosh. And, I'm, I'm, and he was telling Frank Turek yesterday on the phone, I was talking to him, he has got done doing a big debate series. I did a debate in overseas. I think it was in Oslo, and I thought to myself, wow, I'm so impressed with that. I won't do it. Um, a lot of it's because maybe it's just my own... I. I just I feel like debates sometimes are like championship fights. You know, when I was a kid growing up, it was Ali and Foreman and uh, Ken Norton, and these guys would fight. You know, and Joe Frazier would fight Ali, and they think they fought three times, and I think they each won you know once, and then they had a decisive third fight. And every time you'd get done with the fight, the fans of Ali would say, if he lost, they would say, "Well, I don't care. Ali's still a better fight. He had a bad night." And what I see when I watch these debates is that, like, I don't care. I'm not sure how persuasive they are to people who are staunchly entrenched in one position or the other. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, if your guy wins, you say, yeah. We're, and, and, and I watched, like, the Bill Nye-Ken Ham debate a couple of weeks ago. Afterwards, the blog was filled. Every supporter of Ken Ham said he won. Every supporter of Bill Nye said he won. I don't know if anyone really moves. I mean, I think it's great that the, the discussion comes forward and we get a chance to work behind it to help talk about the issues. But I'm never quite sure that um, you know that we do much good in terms of actually address you know winning people during the debate uh, in, in one direction or the other. Now I know that's a position that not everyone agrees with, and but so for me, I feel like hey, I have my lane where I can I can participate. Yeah. And I love the Q&A sessions after these talks. The best part of the whole talk is the Q&A, and lots of skeptics will come forward and ask their good questions. 
and they'll stick around for a half an hour and want to talk. That's great. I think that's wonderful. And that, to me, is uh, that conversational back and forth is some ways as powerful, if not more powerful, for, for me as uh, than yeah. debating somebody. So, But well, at I, the same time, I respect those who do, and I'm actually envious of those who do. Yeah, you know, and I, I think you raise a good point. I mean, you're you're dialoguing with uh, unbelievers, which is really helpful. I mean, it's, Paul goes in the synagogue and he reasons with them, which is what you're doing in Q&A. And, yeah. and I definitely understand what you're saying. In fact, I, I kind of anticipated that was going to be your answer based on what you had said previous to the question. So, and I think that's been a fair question that's been raised. What has been good um, is that... Uh, you are out there addressing people's comments and concerns. And I highly encourage uh, those of you that are listening today to get on coldcasechristianity.com. Don't feel you have to do all this work yourself. Don't feel like you have to um, become an apologist. There are people that God raises up. I'll never forget um, the late, great Walter Martin uh, yeah. Talking about the fact that, you know, he prayed, you know, it was it was close to his death. And he said, I pray that God would raise up uh, counter cult uh, apologists to do what I do. And of course, you know, we never really seen people rise up to the same, uh, I, I guess, status as, as, you know, where he took it. Um, still, he laid the foundation, probably made the biggest splash in it. Um, but I think that God does raise people up to do. Um, different types of things. Uh, apologists, if you're looking at the um, fivefold uh, role in Ephesians 4, uh, they definitely fall into the teacher category. Not everyone can focus on these things. But thankfully to the church, God has gifted us with people that are teachers, people that think this way. They've got an evangelistic bent. In some ways, you could almost say that they've got a frontline apostolic bent in, in, in terms of being missionaries to the skeptics. And so, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, man, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. We are grateful for your ministry. It I appreciate those you, of us. Yeah. Hey, it, it saves those of us, uh, particularly our planners, that are having these very conversations and sometimes saying, like Josh McDowell, gosh, I, I wish I had uh, Jay Warner Wallace in my back pocket years ago uh, because he's coming at it from another angle. I, I absolutely, my biggest takeaway in this conversation is your whole definition of uh, evidence. And of course, that is the foundation that you're laying in this book is let's approach it like we do uh, things that are life and death matters um, professionally, you know, uh, criminally. Uh, the, the people's entire destinies hang not just eternally, but even in the criminal world on how we weigh evidence. And so we're not just talking about people's lives, we're talking about their eternal lives. And so um, if it applies what's good enough for the goose is good for the gander, right? We're, That's right. we're applying these same rules. So it, it has been an honor to have you on here, man. I love hearing uh, your story, how you've approached this. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, we hear and see more of you in future. Well, I appreciate it. And you can tell you've got a kindred spirit. You know, when you get on a show with somebody, you feel like, wow, you probably could go, you know, just go have dinner together because we could probably talk for hours about some of the things, our parallels in our ministries. But So it was really great to, to get to meet you on the podcast like this. And I'm hoping there is going to be opportunity coming forward that we can actually sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about this stuff, for, uh, you know, actually personally. So we'll, hopefully we'll schedule something like that. But I appreciate you guys having me on. I really do. Uh, thanks for coming. Well, hey, you've been listening to the Church Planner Podcast. Pete, anything you want to say? Hey, if you've got a comment about today's podcast, give us a call on our message line, 562-553-0004, or 
leave us a message and uh, let us know what you thought. Absolutely. Well, hey, we're here reminding you that if you want to reach the people that nobody's reaching, you need to go where nobody's going and do what nobody's doing. Game over, man. It's game over. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music